We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You're listening to Setting the Pace, your go-to Pacers podcast with Alex Golden and Michael Focci. McConnell pushing again, gets underneath, finds Sabonis for the dunk and the ball. That's it. That's it, Sabonis. Take it right at him. Karis LeVert, people don't realize how good he really is. LeVert, skies high for the jam. Brogdon for three. Warren lets it fly. Yes! T.J. Warren is not human! Well, you got it setting the pace, and I think that's terrific. Hey, Pace Nation, what's going on? Welcome back to another episode of Setting the Pace. I was unable to record with my co-host during this episode, but we both were on this show, so Mike Focci went one-on-one with former Indiana Pacers guard from Texas, T.J. Ford, and they had a nice lengthy conversation. That'll be played in the first segment. I think it was about 15 to 20 minutes long, so hope you guys enjoy that. And then after that, I did about an hour-long conversation with host of The Ride with JMV. JMV came on. Uh, he's been on this podcast before, and it was really fun. We just kind of talked about the offseason, what the Pacers could do in the draft, what they could do in the offseason. We had a very long conversation about Miles Turner, where we'd like to see him go if he is dealt, and why he is the most likely candidate to get dealt in this year's Uh, offseason for the Indiana Pacers once again so a lot of good conversations surrounding that we talk about some hypotheticals and things like that the Eric Gordon trade rumors other trade rumors involving Miles Turner so just a lot of interesting things there with JMV so yeah hope you guys enjoyed today's show and me and Fach will be back later in the week as we get ready for an exciting draft week we'll talk to y'all later all right, everybody, we are now joined by former Indiana Pacer, Texas Hoops legend, and one of the purest point guards of my generation, TJ Ford. TJ, what's happening? What's going on? Foxy. Foxy. Did I say it right? I get Foxy. It right? <laughs> Foxy. Foxy. Hey, How you doing? Man? I'm sure the listeners will love that even more. So I'm doing great. But TJ, you're always someone whose game I enjoyed. I am a sucker for a true point guard, someone with that rare passing vision that you just can't teach. Was that always something that you had in your game, or when did you develop that? I mean, I developed that as a young kid. You know, my father was teaching me the game, and always, you know, I was the littlest guy on the court, so I always had to think I mean, and understand what all the, you know, players on my team were strengths were. So that also put me in the best situation as well growing up. So, you know, we're basketball junkies. We are 
um, gym rat. So just growing up in the gym as a kid, watching my, my father play in men's leagues and being able to always play against, you know, older, older teams, older players, um, just allowed me to kind of just take a different view of what the game of basketball meant to me and, and how I was able to, you know, to be taught to see the games. I absolutely love it. Something we don't see enough, but I could definitely respect it. So after becoming the first freshman to lead the nation in assists, you eventually take the Longhorns to the final four. You win national collegiate player of the year. And then you enter a star studded 2003 NBA draft where you get picked eighth overall. Did you know, did you have any idea how special that draft class was going to be at that time? You have no idea. You know, you, you have no idea. I think at that time you you're so concentrated on yourself or just being able to get drafted and, and knowing the impact that it's going to have on not only yourself, but your family. So to be part of one of the best draft class um, possibly ever, um, when you look at LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, Carmelo Anthony's and so forth and so on, those guys was able to, um, you know, do things and uh, for the game of basketball that, you know, we never thought could happen, and especially from a performance standpoint, but, just what those guys been able to do from a business standpoint of, of changing the way business of basketball um, operates. I, I think our class or, or this era, um, LeBron James would, would be able to take a, a, a big reasoning of where the, the league is at now and, and uh, the way the structure is set up. Uh, he was somebody who saw things before it happened and uh, created a new business for all of us to be able to look at this business differently. Absolutely. For most, you know, NBA junkies, there's the 84 draft, the 96, 2003, and then there's everything else. So those are the three big draft classes that everyone truly looks back and says, wow, those are really special classes. But, you know, no one ever doubted your talent on the court. But what I really respect most about you is your heart and hard work off the court. TJ, I never really knew to what extent, but when was the first time that you knew uh, about spinal stenosis or, you know, dealing with that? And was it a miracle in the first place that you were able to play at Texas and the NBA? Well, I found out about my spinal stenosis um, the last two weeks of my high school before I graduated uh, late May. And then I was able to go see doctors and experts when I uh, arrived on the University of Texas campus for summer school at June. And for the whole summer, I was just getting exams and, and getting tested. And, um, you know, I was supposed to have surgery going in, you know, that summer, uh, but decided not to go through with the surgery. And I felt I was healthy. And the rest is history of my career at the University of Texas. Um, so I, I was able to educate myself and um, going into college about, you know, my spinal stenosis and how I had to deal with it. Um, uh, and we was able to create a, uh, you know, a plan that allows me to be successful and have a, a stellar college career without any problems. Hey, and stellar career it was, you have your Jersey in the rafter, something that the university of Texas really does not do. So, you know, congrats to you there. And, you know, after a few years in Milwaukee, a successful, you know, time in Toronto where, you know, you help them acquire, help them win their first division title. Uh, eventually there's a six player trade that brings you to Indiana. Now, 2008 Pacers trade faced the franchise Jermaine O'Neal to acquire you, what would end up being the pick for Roy Hibbert and a few other players. Uh, you know, while I was sad to see Jermaine go, cause that, that was my favorite player growing up. Very excited to see you come over to Indiana. What was it like when you found out that you got traded to the Pacers? 
Well, I knew I was going to get traded out of Toronto um, my last year there. Just didn't know where. I had a you know bunch of talks with different teams and possibilities, but uh, just getting traded to Indiana for Jermaine O'Neal. You know what you was coming to as far as uh, rebuilding, um, rebranding phase after you know everything of with that group with the brawl. Um, we had a good time here. Um, was able to experience the playoffs. Uh, every team that I played for, I was able to experience that with them. Um, it, it was it was a good lesson, you know. I think it, it um, from a plan standpoint, um, did didn't do the things uh, that I was set out to do um, of them going younger. But for the most part, you know, from from a life lesson, from a basketball experience, from a knowledge standpoint, I mean, I, I grew a lot as a person here. So I, I love, uh, you know, my time here in Indiana that I spent my three years, just of the, the ups and the downs, but just to be able to weather through it and, and stay locked in and stay focused and uh, still be a good teammate. Oh, yeah, and some of your best scoring games came in Indiana. I mean, a couple career highs. I remember you scoring 34 and 36. Uh, one player who I think is maybe one of the most slept-on players of the mid-2000s, Danny Granger. Can you remind some fans just how good Danny was well, Danny was really, really good. I mean, Danny was able to be around the, the veteran guys, Jermaine O'Neal's, that group before they had to dismantle it. Um, then being able to take a leadership role of um, of our best player and running the offense storm. And uh, he was a guy that I counted on a lot because we we did a lot of unique things, the way he was able to shoot the basketball, use him in, in picking pops in different scenarios. And, you know, he was a guy that brought it for us every night. And I, I definitely enjoyed it. Uh, playing with him and, and also being a part of his his all-star, uh, his first all-star. So that's something I take a lot of pride in as well, you know, making the playoffs and, and uh, making guys, you know, better. And, uh, you know, I was able to do that on all my stops. You you made quite a few players better. I mean, a, a long list, uh, you know, guys like Chris Bosh and, and everything who really blossomed, you know, while you were playing with him as well. But one player who was curious if you knew had something special going on at a, at an early age, his rookie year, Paul George. Did you see something special in Paul early on? Uh, Paul was really good. We had a good rookie class. Uh, you know, just his skill set, you know, his ability to put the ball on the floor, shoot, create his own dribble, uh, I mean, create his own shot. Uh, was a guy that was locking down guys or, or really, really good on defense as well. Um, seeing what he turned into, um, you've seen the work ethic there. You saw the talent there. But, I mean, a lot of stuff you really can't predict. Uh, I, I really wasn't even looking at it like like that. But I know he was a hell of a basketball player. Uh, and he was able to, um, you know, take Indiana basketball, the Pacers basketball organization to the next level. Um, of what they anticipated on, on doing, you know, throughout that rebuild of, of drafting these guys. And, and they did really, really well. I mean, they was able to be thrown in the fire and get the minutes and get the experience um, early on. And I think that was very helpful in their careers. And uh, I think, was, you know, when you look back, it was great decisions by, uh, by Larry Bird, um, making sure these guys get that experience. Because you know, they all became dominant players. Oh, Danny yeah. Green. Uh, I mean, not Danny Green, Danny Granger, Lance Stevenson, Paul Roy George, Roy Hibbert, Josh McRoberts. A lot, lot of good uh, players. They were all young when you were, you know, right over there. But truly, the next few years for the Pacers, you know, those players would develop and be a big part of the reason why they would go on to back-to-back conference finals. 
Um, a really exciting time coming up right now. The NBA draft, it's uh, less than a week away. Um, you know, about 18 years ago when you got drafted, things were a little bit different. Players were having one-on-one -on -one battles, um, you know, in workouts. And I don't think they do that really anymore. It's a lot more drills. Uh, do, you, do you have any good workout stories from your time? No, I mean, I was one of the high draft picks. I, I, I mean, I only went against Kurt Heinrich was the only talent that I went, went against in, in a uh, the Miami Heat when I was trying out for them. But for the most part, I mean, no, I, I think, you know, that's the opportunity for you to showcase your talents and allow the organization and yourself to get a better, you know, a better understanding of, you know, what you're going to be dealing with, uh, what the organization is about. And they get a good idea uh, to be hands-on with you to kind of get an idea of, you know, who you are as a person. So I don't have any crazy stories. I mean, the only thing I can tell you is, you know, a lot of my draft workouts, I felt I did really, really well. Uh, but I was also around guys that, you know, had to do 20, 30 workouts. So I was pretty, pretty blessed to, you know, only have to do, you know, six teams, five to six teams. Um well, they clearly saw enough because you were able to go eighth overall. So, you know, you must have done very well in those workouts. But one thing when uh, people look back on uh, maybe your time as a rookie, one of the most requested questions is the infamous rookie shoot with the baggy shorts. Can you have any background information as to, you know, why that was such a, an infamous time? Well, what happened with that, man, you know, when you get ready to do media day was a rookie transitional program and, uh, they was doing a lot of photo stuff there on one of the days, and that's just the, the uniforms, and that's what the Bucks had sent me. So it was either I take the photos, <laughs> or I, or I don't take them at all. But I, you know, when you're doing all those things for basketball cards and for video games as a kid, that's the most thing that you think about is being a pro and being on those games. So I wasn't gonna miss my opportunity. No, to, you know. But, you know, that those photos and that photo is legendary. It really it, is. You know, it resurfaced every year around draft time. It always will. Uh, got kids that didn't know me. Um, you know, it allows me to kind of, kind of still be relevant and create conversation with the new generation of guys that's coming to the league. It's as nostalgic as it gets. Uh, you know, I think it's something that's great that it pops up each year because it really reminds you of how the styles were different back then, even if Milwaukee probably could have sent you a, a little bit of a closer size. But, you know. Yeah, I'm not sure what happened <laughs> now. I mean, the jersey was long, it's just as long as the shorts. <laughs> you could have used it as a parachute, to tell you the truth. But, you yeah. know, it, it's great looking back. Um, now, I know you're doing a lot of amazing stuff off the court that I want to be able to cover before you have to go. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing in terms of youth hoops? Well, once I retired in 2012, you know, I, was, I had an AAU program uh, my father ran. While I was in the league, and we just came in and revamped, and I got involved trying to just help kids uh, continue to just find an opportunity, get opportunity to be seen, and get to college, and try to earn a scholarship. So, you know, this is my I think tenth, eleven year doing it. The program's been successful every year. We we're getting um, you know every kid that makes our senior teams in the school. Um, you know, with the help you know my brother running an organization, reaching out to coaches all the time. And, um, you know, changing kids' lives. So it's been pretty successful. We've put, um, you know, over 100 kids in school, and that's, those numbers are continue going up, and we've been seeing the, the fruits of that labor of our kids graduating and being successful young men in the working space. 
Absolutely amazing. I know you had also founded uh, the TJ Ford Foundation, you know, right when you entered the league and also went back to Texas to get your degree. Um, right before we wrap up, I wanted to do a, a bit of a rapid fire with some questions that fans asked. Um, okay. Right now, favorite memory um, as a Pacer? Favorite memory as a Pacer? Um, hmm. Got some pretty good ones, but I mean, I, I would just. Mm, favorite memories. Well, one, I mean, I have a few. One of them is, uh, I think I was in Boston. I really had back problems. I got one clip where I'm kind of crawling on the floor, picked the ball up, laid it up. Half court shot in the playoffs against Chicago. Um, man, I haven't never got asked that one about Indiana. We got, we got some good questions from some fans. You know, they, they miss you. Yeah, I'll probably say, I mean, I, I mean if I had to go back, I mean, good moments, just just playing. I think we competed. I think the guys on my team, um, unique set of guys, and we really have a unique bond, and I'm still close to the majority of the guys on that was on those teams. I'm still in contact with Brandon Rush. I'm still in contact with Jeff Foster. I'm here wow, in Andy spending time with – Right there. Yeah. You know, we, we spent a lot of time together, me and Jeff Foster. I'm, I'm in Indy spending time with Josh McRoberts the, the past two days. Amazing. Uh, Brandon Rush is somebody I, I'm still uh, in contact with. Mike Dunleavy. So I, I would say my best memories, man, is that, you know, I'm still connected to a lot of guys on that team. Uh, Travis Diener. So I, I would say the relationships that was built amongst those guys. All right. Uh, favorite teammate as a Pacer? Favorite teammate, Rosho Nesterovich. Oh, okay. Another guy who came over in that trade. So I, I can see you guys probably built that relationship in Toronto, maybe. Uh, favorite yeah. Longhorn teammate? Favorite Longhorn teammate? I don't think I played with that many guys. I know P.J. Tucker was my rookie. Um, I would probably say to them, uh, Corey, let's go with Corey Joseph in the oh, NBA. Okay. I played yeah. with Corey Joseph. That was my rookie in San Antonio. So let's go with Corey Joseph. Very cool. Favorite coach that you ever played for in the NBA? Sam Mitchell. Sam Mitchell. Okay. He got slept on, former coach of the year. All right. And I know, uh, you know, as we wrap up, you recently saw Space Jam. I'm going to see it on Sunday with my fiance. Uh, who's the better actor, Michael Jordan or LeBron James? I don't like kind of putting those guys in the box of comparing. I think, you know, I've seen Space Jam. I got the early release to watch it. Um, I think he did an excellent job, you know, for, for someone to go into that field, into that space. Um, I think he did an amazing job. Um, uh, my kids loved it and enjoyed it. You know, obviously Michael Jordan is, is a unique icon of, of legendary that's, you know, he's on the island by himself, basically. But when you look at LeBron James and what he's been able to do for this generation, he is this generation's Michael Jordan um, for the things that he is doing on the basketball court, the things that he does off the court, and just him also, you know, being in a space where he's he's considered somewhat of a normal guy by, you know, just being a father and kids being able to see him, you know, in this AAU space that we're in of watching his sons play, so... When I look at LeBron James and I look at Space Jam, I thought it was just, they did an excellent job. You know, I enjoyed it. It is something that I, I mean, I will watch again. Hey, I'm I'm excited to watch it tomorrow. Um, as we wrap up, any last words for the fans uh, of Indiana? No, man, I loved Indiana. I look forward to coming back to Indiana, getting involved in, um, you know, 
basketball here, camps, clinics eventually. Uh, and, uh, man, look forward to hearing from me more here in Indiana. Hey, TJ, people love nothing more than former Pacers coming back and, and talking highly of the team. So thanks a lot. I know you got a youth hoops game coming up right now. So I wish you and the team luck. And thanks a lot for coming on. Oh, man, I appreciate it and uh, look forward and glad we had a good talk. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What is going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Setting the Pace. And I'm going to be joined once again by JMV from 1070 Fan. JMV, what's going on, man? How you doing, Alex? Doing excellent. Getting ready for this week. Thursday can't get here quick enough for me as I am highly anticipating this draft being something of importance to the Pacers offseason as we get things rolling here. And just just looking at this draft, I mean, a lot of talks about the Pacers being in trade talks. They're wanting to improve this roster. They could stay at 13. They could move out. They can move up. Uh, what does your gut say right now with, with what the Pacers do? Yeah, I mean, I've changed my mind about 15 different ways here, but I still think that that they will probably trade out of it somehow, some way. Um, I had Jay Michael had told me that a week ago when I had him on the show, and I've kind of bounced back and forth. To me, I, I guess it depends on who you really like and if that person is there at 13. I've got a feeling, Alex, that like the person that I like in Davion Mitchell and the person you like in Moses Moody maybe won't necessarily be the players that they like. I don't know. I just got this kind of weird feeling about it. I just got a weird feeling that Rick Carlisle, you know, with this, this contract and now back with the team here, will want to try to gather together guys that he feels – can be useful for him immediately more so than taking the shot at 13. But 
it's funny, buddy. I think about this all the time, and I brought this up on the show last week. Like, I, I think that really a majority of the fan base, they want to see the Pacers get a really good player. And I've, I've called it rotationally good or whatever. And, you know, you and I haven't talked about that before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this is really the one uh, where if they're going to draft, you'd like to see something elevated play-wise out of it. But I will also say I think that this fan base, for the most part, the ones that I hear from, kind of look at this situation and think, all right, this is the final – this is the, like the final gauge on what Kevin Pritchard and Chad Buchanan can do. All right, this is the one. If you can't find anybody out of this, as we have seen in a while, as far as you know, drafting is concerned, I think this is going to be the last straw of many fans. So I think more so than anything else, they want to see them pick a guy at 13 – that might be rotationally good or better. They certainly would like to see that, but they also want to finally see in their minds, Kevin Pritchard and Chad Buchanan get somebody in here that is rotationally good. You know, somebody you know, so they can trust the front office again outside of, of making trades because, you know, this whole coaching situation and these players wanting out, I think it's kind of worn the fan base down a little bit, but that's, that's what I've gathered in the past couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I've heard some people make the argument that the Pacers might want to trade out of the draft so they don't screw it up. And yeah. I, I don't necessarily know if I agree with that. I mean, I think that they have to look at what they've done. I mean, T.J. Leaf was clearly a bust. You know, the, the question mark's still on Goga Batad saying what he could become. I think bigs develop slower than any other position, especially a true center and a guy that was incredibly young. The only problem is they came out and gave him such high praise right away saying he can play right away, we really think he's that good, which I don't necessarily think they realize that he maybe wasn't as good as they expected. And then Aaron Holiday is just a guy that, I, I mean, you thought there for a little bit with McMillan, like, hey, this guy might be a part of the rotation. And, la- and then last year with Bjorkren, it was just completely fell out of it. And now his value is so low, you probably couldn't even get a first-round pick for him in a trade. So you'd probably be looking at a second-round pick just to, to to move Aaron Holiday, which I don't think necessarily is what the Pacers feel like is fair value. So so in terms of the draft, I know you said you're a fan of Davion Mitchell. I don't know if you saw this, but around 222 before we got on here, Jonathan Giovanni uh, uh, put out a, a tweet that said, the Golden State Warriors had in Chris Duarte, Trey Murphy, Moses Moody, and Davion Mitchell for a competitive workout. Result of the workout could very well play a role in who they end up selecting at number 14. Right. So. I think some of the guys we like might be there. And I know the Pacers did recently work out Chris Duarte, somebody they're really intrigued with. Um, a little bit older, 24 years old from Oregon. I know that that's really old for draft purposes, but I don't know why, but I keep feeling like he might be the guy they take at 13. I um, Yeah, I, I've gotten a lot of feedback as far as Duarte being a little bit older and people really not wanting to go that direction. Part of the reason, Alex, I think that maybe – Maybe a lot of this uh, smoke, if you will, is true about what the Pacers are are thinking about doing outside of number 13 and not drafting a 13. I think that's got a lot to do with Rick Carlisle. I mean, I really do. I remember when I had him on a couple of weeks ago, and I asked him, I was just kind of messing, not messing around is the wrong thing to say, but I just, I kind of wanted to know where the decision-making power was. And I know that Kevin Pritchard ultimately has it, but I kind of wanted to know where Rick Carlisle would stand. And, you know, it's reasonable to assume that he's going to have a great deal of power, but I was kind of curious if he had equal to or maybe greater than, and I asked him that, and he started down that path and said, well, hold on a minute. You're better off asking um, Kevin Pritchard about that, and, I, and that's something I respect. I just happen to think that he's going to have a great deal 
of pop into what decision is made here. And I, that's why maybe, and I've been going back and forth. I am more leaning on the trade down established player type of find here than I am anything else. But I will say this, I, I don't know if you've seen this and I'm assuming you have because you keep track of it. The whole rumor of Eric Gordon and trading down for the 13 Ugh. with Houston. I think that's insanity. <laughs> I mean, it's insanity. so disgusting. It's I, I don't, I don't get it. And I don't know if that's somebody Alex just saying, well, he's from Indiana and connecting the dots because in the past, Indiana guys and Indiana, you know, that's all kind of fit like Legos. Right. But mm-hmm. that doesn't make sense to me for anything. You know, I hate when people use check the boxes terms now, but if, if you want to use it, what what box does that check? I mean, he can't guard any better than what they have. Um, he is a streaky at best shooter. And I like the dude, too. Don't get me wrong. And, and shout out to Papa John's. Or no, Greek's Pizzeria. I'm sorry. Papa John's is Shaq. He's Greeks. But, you know, shout out to Greek's Pizzeria and all that. But I, And he can't stay healthy. And that is problematic to me. That's why not one ounce do I understand as to why that rumor is out there or that rumor would make any sense. Well, yeah, like I like you mentioned, he's missed so many games throughout the last couple of seasons. It, it doesn't seem like it's worth the investment to, to take on another two years, I believe, of $18 million per year. And I think yeah. the third year is partially guaranteed, but still doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense. And then you're talking about you have to give salary back to make that deal work. So now you're talking about giving up Jeremy Lamb, probably Aaron Holiday and somebody else just to take on Eric Gordon and then move down 10 spots in the draft where I understand where Jay Michael has talked about pretty much like after seven or eight, like a lot of people feel like eight through 25 or whatever is around the same value. But to me personally, like if you're only, if you're moving down 10 spots to take on that much salary, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I don't think Eric Gordon is a player. He was even three years ago. I mean, a couple years ago in the playoffs, he didn't look terrible, but there's just so much to be desired there. And I think if this was a deal you're talking about three or four years ago, then sure, maybe I'm interested in it, but not right now, not with who Eric Gordon is as a player in the league. And and the biggest problem with this team is availability. We've seen so many injuries throughout the entire years, uh, the last couple of years of the Pacers. Why, why would they trade for a guy that isn't naturally injury prone? So that, that is where I stand on this. There's also been a lot of Stuff coming out about Miles Turner. I think Kevin O'Connor said it on his podcast on Friday that the Warriors and Pacers have been in trade talks for Miles Turner. Ian Begley reported with the New York Post today that the Knicks and the Pelicans, along with the Hornets, have interest in Miles Turner. So it feels like there are a lot of suitors out there for Miles Turner. And I believe in one of the articles that somebody shared that um, Pacers are really only interested in talking trades um, around Miles Turner. So I know this is your guy, someone that you don't really understand why the team would trade him, but um, it, it looks like there are some teams out there that could really want him, and I'm just curious if you like any of those fits for him. Um, I, I kind of – I'd love to see him go to Golden State, and I've said this before. I want to see him go to Golden State and play with that group and then be really good and kind of shove it up the ass of people around here. I think that'd be funny. Um, at least from my standpoint, I kind of laugh about that a little bit. But, now nah, I, I think that – I mean, he's not going to say anything. Um, and I understand why people ultimately would like to move, especially when, when you know, you always have the, the big comparison and if you got to keep one, who you're going to pick. I mean, there's no way in the world, none, that right now where this team is, they're going to get rid of Sabonis because you know this, the court of public opinion 
with Pacer fans around here, um, it would be brutal. So there's no way. And they're not going to go ahead and stick with two bigs, so it's going to be Miles. From Miles' standpoint, that Golden State thing, to me, looks really good if that would be possible. I mean, I thought mm-hmm. for him, you know, if you can just go and, you know, rely on rim protection, not have to score, but, you know, be an option – when, you know, your guy goes to double or your guy goes to help on, you know, assuming Clay Thompson is going to be back and Steph Curry in that group. I think that that would be an awesome restart for him in Golden State. I don't know about the New Orleans thing. It seems like that he and his presence might add to the certain discombobulation that's down there, even though they have some talent, really. I mean, you look at, you know, what they have in New Orleans, and that doesn't make sense to me. And I think they have an e- equal discombobulation um, in Charlotte. I mean, I, they, they always talk about him, you know, going to turn the corner, going to be good. But I don't know if he would really play that well or be that good uh, in a Charlotte uniform. So, yeah, the Golden State would for him I like. And I think it would be probably better off, Alex, that if they can get a good enough deal for it in this case – that you go ahead and send him down the road um, and then see what happens after that. And hopefully that'd be a good deal for the Pacers. But uh, at least from his standpoint, that Golden State thing is interesting for me if it happens. Yeah, I think that's the most intriguing of all of them. I think Andrew Wiggins, like I understand the contract is really expensive, but he's been pretty good the, the last year, at least with Golden State. I think that there's still, you know, only two years left on that deal, similar to Miles. And you're not really trading just to get Wiggins, you know, in this trade, you're looking to get that seventh overall pick, I think. And, and if you can get the seventh overall pick and somehow still keep 13, I think that's a win-win for both teams because, really, if they can keep Wiseman and then maybe flip him later down the road and then they'd have other contracts they could throw in there as well, like Lamb and Turner and Wiseman. I, I don't know what they would do, Golden State, but they could surely make moves still to get better talent if they moved on from Wiggins. It's just – to me, it just depends on how much they value Wiseman and what they think with him in the future. Because I know under I know that people think, hey, they want to win now, but I've also heard from different podcasts and various people talking that Golden State views James Wiseman much higher than the rest of the league gives him, you know, in terms of valuing how they value him uh, and James Wiseman. So that that to me is like, okay, would they really want to trade for a center to put Wiseman on the bench? Would that be the route they go? Uh, and if they're also in talks for like a Bradley Beal or a CJ McCollum or Ben Simmons or all those other guys that are much higher on the pedigree than Miles Turner, they have more assets in terms of Wiseman, Wiggins, and those two picks to go out and get those guys instead of, you know, maybe spending it on, on a guy like Turner, who is just a good player, but not a great player or a guy that, you know, can be considered an all-star. So that, that to me is where I stand on it. I think, I think New Orleans does make a ton of sense because they've wanted him for a very long time. I just don't really know what else they can give us besides the sign and trade for Alonzo Ball that the Pacers would really, really want. Um, they had the 10th overall pick. I, I think the one team that's kind of intriguing to me, though, JMV, is New York because they've got so much cap space. The Pacers could use some of that cap space to re-sign some of their free agents. They could extend TJ Warren, and they wouldn't go into the tax by getting off of Turner's contract by doing that. And also, New York has picks 19 and 21 in this year's draft plus future picks from, from the Mavericks on their roster or on their sheets right now. So personally, to me, I think that could be intriguing. But in terms of getting a player back, I don't really think there's anything that I love on that New York roster that can make sense for this Pacers team. Don't, do you think, though, that if the Pacers are going to do something, don't you think if they're going to trade Miles that they're going to probably want some sort of established player back? Yeah, I think that'd be like 
the ideal thing. That's why I think Lonzo makes the most sense or, or maybe Charlotte with PJ Washington, just because those are guys that, Hey, we've seen them play in the league for a little bit. We know what they can do. Um, the only guy I could see maybe that could fit the rotation, even though I don't think he's at the same level as miles is Reggie Bullock, who had a really great year in New York as a three and D guy. I think he would slide in perfectly with that starting five helps with the perimeter de- defense really was a lights out shooter this year for them. And if they could somehow get two picks plus Reggie Bullock in a deal like that, I think that'd be enticing somewhat from New York. But yeah, I just, in terms of established players, there's just, it's, it's a question mark for, for me in terms of what teams would be willing to give up to, to get miles. Hey, what do you stand Alex, as far as uh, TJ McConnell being a starting point guard on this team, yeah, if no, he's resigned, there's no way. Um, <laughs> I like, I like McConnell as an energy, energy guy off the bench, but I think, Come playoff time, that's when you're going to see his flaws the most because of his he's undersized. And, you know, one thing that I think really helps him in the regular season is just when nobody's really given a, you know, given a care in game 45 of the regular season, TJ McConnell is treating it like it's game seven of the NBA finals because that's the only way TJ McConnell knows how to play. But I uh, I talked about this yesterday on Twitter just because I've seen some anti-Lonzo Ball stuff. And I don't know if you're super high on him or not, but I think like what he's been able to do throughout his career, develop a three-point shot, good perimeter defender, is a solid playmaker. I think having a guy that's like 6'5", 6'6", like Lonzo Ball in that starting lineup and then come playoff time, and when we saw it in the finals, they go to a seven-man rotation. He, If you have Levert, Brogdon, and Lonzo out there, they can all run the point at some point throughout the game. I think that – that helps your chances of, of winning in a playoff series and not feel like you have to rely on what McConnell does so much. Because to me, I, I like McConnell and I'm okay paying him about five to six million a year to come back, but I'm not paying him more than that. I don't really think um, he's the perfect fit in Indiana. I kind of get where people like him, but he just has a lot of flaws to his game. He's undersized and he's not a good three point shooter. So I, I think that, He's I mean, a- it's almost Alex. It's almost like it's it's the rest of the team's fault. Um, yeah, and, and good for good on McConnell too, because I mean, McConnell worked his ass off to get where he is, and I have a great deal of respect for that. But you know, the reason why that you know a lot of us, including myself, view him as to me the most interesting thing the Pacers team had to watch a year ago, and I know you want to factor in inj- injuries too, and that's fair, but mm-hmm. it's because the rest of the way that some of these guys have played. I mean. Yeah. I said this too, man, and, and listen, I'm not anti-Brogdon, and, and I'm not going to be anti-Brogdon because he puts up really good numbers. The problem I have with Brogdon is him playing the one and his defense because he does have kind of a you know step and a half left or right defensive prowess, and he kind of kind of gives it up and lets somebody blow by. Now, that's a problem they have on perimeter D with this team throughout. But I'm not a hater of him, but I will tell you this. I think with the fans around here, and maybe it doesn't matter, but he's got an image problem because people around here view him as to why there have been now three coaches in two years. And that's something that, I mean, I don't know if they care about it. I don't know if they want to. I don't know if these trade rumors that float around regarding Brogdon, if there's any truth to it. But if you do plan on keeping him for the foreseeable future, you're going to have to kind of fix that in the the eyes of the fans. Now, granted, all he has to do is go out and play and, and be better, especially on the defensive end. And, you know, maybe lead this team if he is going to ultimately be the one and be a better one than he has been. But I think right now in the viewpoint of the fan base, they have an image problem with Malcolm Brogdon. And that's part of the reason why everybody looks at TJ McConnell 
and views him as you absolutely have to bring back, and he'd be much better in that spot because they simply don't like who occupies that position right now. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Um, I had Dave Cyril on the podcast about a month ago. Uh, they used to host the Miller Time Pod, and he uh, he brought up the fact that maybe there's a lot of fans out there or, or a good amount of fans that don't like Malcolm Brogdon because of um, you know how how much of a voice he had during the last season with the social injustice, and some people might have just got kind of turned off by that. Um, I thought that was an interesting take. I said it wouldn't surprise me. I know there was a good amount of people that I had interacted with that said they quit watching the NBA because of all the politics that were involved with it. So if he was the leader of that, then I can I can see that with the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, I mean, Indiana is, you know, a dominantly white fan base, right? So I think that there could be some people that are against that. I know that there are some people that have come at me and said, yeah, I actually agree with that take. So I think that that's something that also could rub fans the wrong way in terms of. Well, yeah. And, and you know what? And that, that the, the point I had was him being viewed as an issue for the coach. And I don't necessarily think he had, I mean, he wasn't the issue. Like people always say, well, look at, you know, Milwaukee, when he left Milwaukee, they won. Well, I mean, it wasn't anything instantaneous or when he left Virginia, they won. I mean, that wasn't anything instantaneous either. And that's what I mean by, by image issue. He is mm -hmm. a guy that's, you know, not named Kevin Pritchard where the fans are going to point the finger. I mean, really even more so than miles right now, but they're going to point the finger and go, all right, the past couple of years, you know, the, the coaching, three coaches in two years thing, you know, this didn't start happening until you got here. And um, I, listen, it is, you know, being somewhat outspoken, I'm sure in political matters, I mean, does that have an effect? It will, but at least from the people that I communicate with that call my show, that email me, that tweet me, it's more so what they believe him to be as far as detrimental to a coach and that's why I mentioned it's an image problem I think the Pacers have I don't necessarily buy it because of all I just explained but I still think that it's an image issue that is certainly there for them if again they want to consider keeping him for the foreseeable future yeah and, I, and I'll and I'll jump in there talking about the the coaches and, and how that has impacted things because like you said I mean there was rumblings about him not liking Jason Kidd they move on from kid. He wasn't, you know, necessarily like super unhappy with Bud, but I feel like a lot of Bucks fans that I had talked with had said, yeah, he probably would have enjoyed having a bigger role with, with coach Bud compared to Eric Bledsoe, who ended up getting the money over him. And that's what led to him coming to Indiana. Then you hear about the McMillan stuff and the Bjorkren stuff. And it is kind of odd because he started off loving them. Right. And then all yeah. of a sudden yeah. as the season went on, they started losing or things weren't going as well. Cause I mean, even up to the point into the bubble, he seemed to be for McMillan. It was only until they lost and got swept in the playoffs, he was then noticed as a guy that turned on him in a sense and was one of the louder voices in the locker room with Bjorkren. I think it was pretty funny how, you know, he was praising him at the beginning of the season, saying he's a genius of a coach, and we're hearing from Pritchard how he's having lunch with him every day, and then all of a sudden – they ask him about, are you playing for your coach right now against the Hornets? And he said, we're just trying to win the game. So pretty much just came out and said that he wasn't playing for the coach, which doesn't really matter. But it, it, he could have just said, we love Coach Bjork and we're going to do our best to win this game and, and just kind of shut the rumors down. But he left it open. He kind of just ignored what was asked. And I thought that was interesting. So, yeah, I, I do think that there is something there. I 
I do believe that Carlisle has such a high demand on and respect for this ownership that if Brogdon does seem to kind of butt heads with Carlisle, it will be Brogdon who is on the way out, not Carlisle. Uh, the, you know, this is a respected yeah. coach that's been in the league for a long time and his third time back with this franchise. And the history, you know, the record speaks for itself with how Brogdon's interacting with coaches. I'm hoping that he can turn things around because, like he said, he puts up good numbers. He's a good basketball player. And he just might not be a, you know, a dominant point guard. I think that he's better off ball. And I think we've seen him be a better defender when he guards slower, but more, you know, his type of style matchup wise with, with wings compared to these quick point guards that just blow right by him. So if you get a guy like Lonzo, hopefully he's someone that can kind of help do that. Or if you get another point guard in here that can do that, I think Davion Mitchell is someone that's known for his defensive prowess. In, in college basketball, if he can come in here right away and contribute on the defensive end, then maybe you see him close out some of the tighter games because of that defensive ability. And if he's able to knock down threes at a consistent rate, he would probably get the nod over if they had McConnell still on the roster, or so you would hope. But but that's kind of where I'm at with Brogdon. I, I think that he's probably the second most likely to be traded in that starting five. But at the same time, I don't think they just want to get rid of him because – he, he does – I mean, he's highly respected, I believe, with that front office. So um, I, I'm trying to figure out what they do with Doug and TJ McConnell, though, because I feel like both these guys could be gone. And quite frankly, do you think that both of them coming back really helps improve this roster that much and helps them, you know, compete for a playoff uh, Yeah. I, um, I, I like um, – I, I think they need to – to me, I'd bring back McConnell. Um, I, I would. I'd bring him back to come off the bench, as you talked about a little bit earlier. The thing about McDermott is this. I don't know. Um, Mc, McDermott spent time in Dallas, right? How long did he play for Carlisle? It was only – that was a tail end of the season, yeah, right? it was in like 20-some games, I think. Yeah, and he um, he played pretty well, I think, at the tail end, if I remember correctly. Now, yeah, that's a small thumbnail sketch of, of how he played. But here's my, I guess, issue with Doug. Alex is he um he probably did benefit as far as monetarily and free agent market interest by virtue of Nate Bjorkgren maybe more so than anybody else because all of a sudden and some have said well it started happening before Bjorkgren got here but we, we kind of realized that you know, McDermott doesn't have to sit on the wing or sit in the corner and wait for somebody to dribble drive and then pass it out at him, shoot a three. I think that in large part, most were incredibly surprised by the fact that more points of his came with dribble drives, you know, off the ball movement to the basket and finishing there than it actually did from three-point range. I, th I still think the rest of the NBA kind of views him as how I described him initially. But we found out this year with Nate Bjorgren that he was a hell of a lot different than what we thought. I don't know if he's going to have that possibility now. I think that he was best benefited by Bjorgren, and I don't know if his game would be similar uh, under what Rick Carlisle is going to try to do. Plus, I mean, you look at his numbers and, you know, he had a nice season for a guy coming off the bench and he may get overpaid on that market. And, and really from the time that offensively it really didn't work for him, it was just this past year. And I mentioned, as you said, the 20 games for Rick Carlisle, mm -hmm. he played well. 
But basically, outside of that, he's been a square peg in a round hole, wherever he has been, and he's always been expendable. So I think that he's going to be really expensive, and I also question whether or not he's going to be as useful as he was a lot of times this past season by virtue of the coaching change. Yeah, and I think you also have to factor in injuries as well last season, giving him a bigger opportunity with Levert not playing for a period of time and then Warren not playing from the majority of the season. They were really thin at that position, so it did magnify his game a little bit, and I think he did benefit from the Bjorken offense, which was, like you said, a pretty pretty solid offense because if you look at all the numbers you know, from the players, they went up offensively. You know, they were much yep. improved. But defensively, that's where they really just struggled. And I know Carlisle continues to hammer that every time he has a, a conversation or Pritchard talks about we got to get better at defense. And that's why I, I just keep coming back to they keep preaching this. And then all you hear is, you know, they're going to get rid of Turner in the offseason, which he was arguably your best defender for the last four or five years. Uh, maybe maybe Vic was in 17-18 in the perimeter. But, you know, I know Paul George is really good. But once Paul George left, I mean, it kind of felt like – Miles was the was the best defensive player on this team. And, I mean, his shot blocking has just gotten better and better each season. He continues to figure out ways to position himself to protect the rim. And I understand that the rebounding issue is, you know, something that needs to be addressed. I get that he has to leave his man to go block a shot, and it's not always easy to get the rebound. But I still think, you know, I think you mentioned this before, he, he could be more aggressive on the glass instead of being passive and letting other guys kind of get the rebound. So, I thought it was interesting when Kevin O'Connor and Chris Vernon were talking on their podcast, The Mismatch, about Miles Turner. Kevin O'Connor just said, hey, Chris, what do you think of Miles Turner as a player? And they talked about his elite shot blocking, but they said that the league is a little bit down on him overall. Um, Kevin O'Connor did saying that teams are a little skeptical of what he could become. They like the intangibles and everything that he's shown so far, but they just wonder if he can really, they're skeptical of what type of player he really can be. So, it, it, to me, I'm just I'm stuck here trying to think of how you build this roster because overall, to me, I feel like if you look at the depth of this team, there's good players on the bench, but nobody I'm excited about outside of maybe O'Shea Brissett and what Gogo might become. But I think they have to do some some consolidation here with this bench unit. So, uh, hey, I'm curious about this too uh, with Miles. Do you think Miles because? I think Miles had a, a really good one, healthy defensive season by virtue of just how bad the Spacer team was out front. And it was almost not just a, well, they're bad and they can't stay in front of anybody. It was almost like it was a lazy bad. As I mentioned with Brogdon, it's like a step and a half left or right and then let it go and know that you're going to have, have help. And the thing about Miles is I know that he improved his shot blocking. But his simple presence there when he's in the game, I mean, it it does give pause for those trying to go into the lane to think about. And that does have a lasting effect. But I also question whether or not if he goes someplace else, is he going to have a, a similar effectiveness if you actually have a group that feels like and does play a little better defense? Because he was also a product of just a team on the perimeter was uh, awful. And I thought at times it was like lazy awful. Like some people had said it was a product of, of scheme or whatever. I, I thought at times it was just kind of lazy. And I don't know if you play with a better team, a better defensive team, if he's going to put up those types of defensive stats that he did for most of the season here in large part because he had to. I mean, he absolutely had to. And I thought 
that um, th- this team defensively on the perimeter was not just bad, but kind of lazy bad there too. So that's that's something to think about. But he also was effective just by virtue of being there. Yeah. Um, and yeah, does his rebounding need to improve? Sure. I mean, I, I I've like argue with people about this often, and I, I think I told you that. I mean, even at the free throw line. When somebody you know misses the second of a, a two shot situation, and all of a sudden one of the guards just fly in there and grab the rebound, I'm thinking 33. Would you get it? That gives you one extra rebound. Just go up there and get it. You know, don't let it. You know, it's like the old Lance Stevenson thing when he'd fly in from the, you know, from the top, top of the uh, the free throw line to get that rebound. Uh, I mean, he was kind of you know he knew he was wanting to pad those stats a little bit rebounding, and you know Miles could help himself out, but he always kind of gives way to that and. And uh, he, he's just rebounding wise. He's just not a big brute type of dude, and yeah. he's not going to be. It's like everybody's saying, "Well, you got to get him in the post and do this and do that." He's not a good post player. He's never going to be a good post player. Part of it to me is offensively that bigger guys, or I should say, smaller guys that are strong can move him around because his his base is not solid. He's an athletic dude at six eleven but his base is not conducive to being able to sit down there and take people defensively where he would like to take them. And that to me is problematic to a guy trying to be a post player. And plus, I mean, I mean, Rick Carlisle has, has come from, you know, the, the whole mentality offensively of, you know, the whole, if you're playing through the post or playing in the post and taking twos, then you're kind of hosing yourself. So I don't even know where that would, play a role with where Carlisle is going offensively in the future, at least from people shouting at Miles to get down in the post because the reason why that wasn't an option because he hasn't been able to and he's really never going to be able to do it. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, you can't force somebody to be, be somebody they're not, you know. It's right. like trying to force a bonus to be a great three-point shooter. I just don't ever think it's really going to happen. I mean, it could happen over time, but that's not his game. I mean, and, and quite frankly – with his back to the basket, it's okay, but he takes too long sometimes to make his move. I really believe, and I think Kevin Pritchard said this, he's best on the perimeter being a facilitator and a screen-and-roll kind of guy. And I actually think his mid-range game had improved over the last couple of seasons. But then last year, I can't hardly remember him taking any mid-range jumpers as the Pacers kind of went in a totally analytical offense where they really didn't shoot mid-range shots. So. Yeah, I mean, with, with Turner, though, it's interesting. I think the reason teams are so enamored by him is because they view him as a as a, as a center that blocks shots and can hit the three. So, I mean, that's what it is. And, and he doesn't require – he doesn't require a lot of looks. Right. You know and what I mean? He's, he's yeah. okay. You can have, you know, two and three others that get all the looks and he'll take whatever's left and he's cool with it. Yeah, he's a, and he's a really – really what it is, too, is he's a great guy off the court. He's not a locker room problem, never has been. He's just, you know, there's been a couple times where he's been on social media kind of campaigning for himself. But at the end of the day, he just, you know, he gets frustrated. I think one of the funniest tweets he put out was when he realized there was nobody in Indiana that had a vote for like all NBA or anything like that. He was like, Indiana people don't even have a vote. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's. You know like, what, though? Uh, honestly, though, Alex, you, you can't take this. I've always said that if there was anybody that shouldn't be on social media, it's him because I always oh, thought yeah. that social media would help shape his attitude and to me if if i were him i kind of understand because you just take so much crap especially so much crap from your own fan base to where when you do something well you 
you, you don't feel like you're getting any recognition. It's like, yeah, we're going to talk a bunch of junk when you suck, but when you're good, we're going to stay quiet and not say a word. And I just think that's kind of a mentality that is built by virtue of social media. And yet, you know, it's another thing that is so wrong with social media and a huge thing as to why that, you know, you just have certain personalities that just don't mesh and don't mix really well. And, and to me, I always thought that that would have at different times an effect on his game, but I do understand it because I mean, nobody, you know, he always got the crap. I mean, he was like the reason that you lose and you're bad and he always got it, but he was never the reason why things were going right. And then when he, you know, got national credit for getting the job done defensively and he hears, you know, nothing crickets, if you will, from the local fan base that I think that that causes you to want to kind of pat yourself on the back. And that's not a good look either, but I, I can get it. I mean, I can understand it. That's why I, I think that's the way that social media kind of shapes some, especially those that absolutely have the hammer put down on them constantly. And he certainly with his own fan base has been in that ballpark. Yeah, no, it's, it's kind of, it's really sad to see how some of the fans in the fan base do go at him on social media. It's like, you know, I mean, why are we tweeting it? You know, basketball players like we can just i mean he's lazy that's what they said you know this guy like this last week somebody sent me uh you gotta trade miles he's lazy you know what no you fat ass you're lazy all right (laughs) miles isn't lazy your fat ass is lazy and you suck and you're unathletic he's not lazy he may Mm -hmm. not be what you hope him to be you may dislike him but he's not lazy he's a good player that to me alex will elevate a better team He's a good player that on a middle-of-the-road type of team, you're always looking at for more, and then you're pissed off when you don't get it. And, and I really believe this, too. If the Pacers did trade Sabonis, which we both don't think is going to happen, but if they did trade Sabonis and somehow were able to acquire a player or two over the next couple of seasons to really make this team uh, a championship-level team, if you saw Miles have a game-saving block similar to what Roy Hibbert did to Carmelo – you could really care less about how many rebounds he had in game 37 against the Wizards. You know what I mean? If he just hasn't had a chance to really have a big playoff moment where he can show how much he does impact the game. And sometimes I feel like that has been a bit of what's holding him back in terms of fan bases really respecting him because the only game that I really feel like he could have done that in was maybe the Cleveland series in 17-18. They brought Tristan Thompson in, and Tristan Thompson – just completely bullied both him and Sabonis in that game. And it was very frustrating because I don't think Thompson had played all series long. They pulled him out yeah. of nowhere in game seven. And you're thinking, really, they're going to pull this guy out in game seven and this is what happens? So yep. I think that that maybe have just kind of set everybody back a little bit in terms of how they viewed him. And then, you know, four years later, we still can't get that out of our head, how ineffective he was in that game against Tristan Thompson. But Tristan Thompson was a veteran that had been – Plenty of big playoff moments before that. Oh, and you can tell some of these big guys. I mean, Embiid being one, they know that they got it. They know that they got in from the jump. You know, there are just certain matchup situations uh, in games when somebody goes up against Miles, and you can kind of tell that they believe that they have. And I also think that a lot of this is by virtue of Bird saying that what well, he could go down in history as the greatest draft pick or one of the greatest draft picks or whatever when they brought him in and, you know, he had a really nice rookie season and he was growing. And then, you know, you had the Paul George bomb and he wanted out and, you know, that just all kind of 
kind of fell apart, you know, after that. But I just I think that again, looking at him, he is he needs to be a part of a good team, a yeah. good team where he is, you know, third, fourth, fifth type of option out there. You can count on him defensively. But if you're going to be in a middle of the road team that are look you're looking for huge numbers night in and night out from somebody like that. Uh, you're just going to be disappointed. Thus, you're going to be pissed off, and you're going to be going at him all the time. So, that's that's kind of how I think about him. I I, I also think this. Um, he, he's a dude that wanted to. Stay. I think people, you know, have given him a little bit of credit because the dude wants to stay, and he does want to win here as much as anybody else. And believe me, you've had a couple of people here that you thought that wanted to be here, and you thought wanted to win here. And then ultimately they didn't, and he hasn't been, he hasn't been that type of dude. But you know, once once you end up being kind of a punching bag, right? People zero in on you every single time, and you know, and Hibbert here became that as well. You know, a punching bag, and everybody got all over him. Normally, it's the coaches that become that. McMillan, to a degree, became that at the end of his his tenure. I mean, there's always one type of punching bag everybody is going to take a swing at, and. You know, over the years, certainly, uh, it has been miles. That's why I'm hoping he goes someplace else and plays really well, and um, and uh, gives him a little bit of satisfaction because you can you can tell Alex he's a dude that struggles with it a little bit, and mm. and that would have to suck. No matter how much money you make, how famous you are, I mean, you can tell that dude struggles with it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, and I think if you were someone that loves social media as just a person. And you're just on it all the time and you just see more negative than positive. Like even if he gets more positive than negative, it's just as a human being, you respond more to a negative comment than you do a positive one. Like I think about the best players in the United States right now. You you think they want to look at their social media, right? You think Durant (laughs) and Lillard and all these guys, you know, we're, we're taping right now and France in that first game of the Olympics beat team USA. You think those dudes are over in Tokyo wanting to look at what their social media is saying I mean, it, it is vicious for everybody. I mean, right. it is, I mean, from, you know, one of the greatest of all time and Durant to somebody that's just kind of, you know, hoping to have a good season and, you know, may end up being someplace else and in miles Turner, but it, it is, it is brutal. Sometimes the best way is uh, just no way and not to be a part of it. Yeah. I don't know how these guys do it. Yeah. I mean, you, if you see someone like Sabonis, you, you notice he's never on social media. He might share something on Instagram, but, him and his fiance, but very often is he on there. I mean, I know some guys that have had other people manage their Twitter account for him. I think that might be something to look at just because you got to be able to filter some stuff that you're seeing and not let it get to you because, you know, all these people are human at the end of the day and uh, they still deal with human emotions, even though they're million dollar basketball players. And I think that that's something, you know, I just, I never will go out and directly tweet at a player and just talk about how bad they are how they suck or whatever. I just – I think it's tacky, and I think it's really just idiotic because if you weren't behind a keyboard, you wouldn't be saying that stuff to their face. So uh, you'd probably be asking for an autograph. <laughs> yeah, end. I mean, it's, you know? yeah, so, yeah, it's just – yeah, I mean, that's just the way – that's the way it is now. But it's um, – it, it certainly would have to be a pain, and I would think if you're at that level uh, of a professional getting paid that much, it would be one of the last pains you would want to have to deal with. Certainly on a daily basis, right? That'd drive you nuts. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I wanted to get back to what I had asked you um, a little bit in that conversation. I threw a lot at you there before we got off on a Miles conversation there. But talking about consolidating some of that bench, 
to me, it just feels like if they brought both McConnell and McDermott back, you've got Lamb, you've got Justin Holiday, you've got O'Shea Brissett, Goga, Aaron Holiday, Edmund Sumner. It just feels like there's a lot of guys that, you know, I guess warrant some type of playing time, but you can only play so many players. And I'm not really in love, like I said earlier, with anybody on the bench, even if they brought everybody back. I think Justin Holiday is probably the Pacers' best bench player, and that's not a knock against Justin, but I think that that means you've got some improvements you could use on your bench overall. I think O'Shea Brissett's a really intriguing young player who showed us a little bit last season, but I think at that point in the year, we desperately needed that position that he provides, and it was just a little bit of a spark that this team desperately needed in a, in a bad run there. So in terms of the bench, are you are you a fan of maybe consolidating some of those guys and trading them out to try to bolster the roster a little bit? Um, I'd be hard-pressed hard, hard pressed to believe that that's a great bench that you would want to back up a team that you believe can, you know, get back into the postseason. You know, and, and I think we all know what they're thinking. Um, with Rick Carlisle here, it's certainly back to the postseason and trying to chase that dangling carrot of – you know, challenging to get out of the first round of the postseason. It just doesn't look like – that bench to me doesn't look like a bench yeah. that is going to be adequate enough to be able to do that. So there's there's no doubt you have to be thinking seriously about that bench and how to upgrade it in whatever means necessary. Yeah, and I don't really know what trades are out there. I mean, there's some guys that could be available be be a you know, sign-in trade and – I think what's what's enticing is you do have expiring contracts from Edmund Sumner, Aaron Holiday, and Jeremy Lamb. Um, obviously, you get your two free agents in McConnell and McDermott. Bursett's got a non-guaranteed deal, I think. Up, you know, that'll be guaranteed by a certain point in, in the season next year. But I, I, I think they'll pick up those options because it's so cheap. But with all these team options and player options, it just feels like they've got to make a move somewhere. I don't know what exactly that move is, but. You also have to include if they keep that pick at 13, where do they fit into the rotation? And yeah. they, I thought one of the most interesting things that uh, Jay Michael said on his interview with you a couple of weeks ago was that, you know, maybe getting Cassius Stanley some more run. And they felt like with Bjorkren, he'd be able to play the young guys a little bit more, but he didn't. And then he said, well, now that Carlisle's in here, that they'll get to maybe get to see more young guys play. And I thought that was kind of contradictory to what Carlisle has done in his times in Dallas because – I can't see it. I can't see it. I can't either. I was like, man, I, mean, I get why Cassius Stanley is exciting at 54. He's super athletic and, you know, decent shot. But I, I just don't necessarily think that they're going to invest in all these young guys. Like, if they're going to play Ber O'Shea Brissett a lot of minutes, that would probably surprise me somewhat too. Yeah, I, I can't see it. I That's why – and really, that would contradict to what my feeling is. I've been back and forth on it, but it contradicts what my feeling is about the upcoming draft on on Thursday. I just, it seems like that Rick Carlisle will not want to mess with having to play a, a lot of dudes that he doesn't believe should be rotational and out there and having to work through things. You know, it's mm -hmm. kind of like what what Bjorkman was supposed to do and then really didn't do that Nate McMillan didn't want to do because he wanted to win. But then, you know, Bjorkman wasn't doing it either, not until everybody got injured, and they were kind of forced into seeing or playing some of these guys that we had never seen. 
I mean, you think about Alize Johnson all the time, right? I mean, he was like one of the big reasons why you make that transition from McMillan to Bjorkgren because you're going to see some of these guys we haven't seen, and Alize Johnson was going to be one of those guys, and then he was just dropped. And depending upon who you believe in, in Brooklyn, and not that it matters because of the way their team makeup is, but they say they really like him there, and he's going to be a part of their future. But whatever. I just I find it less uh, less believable that Carlisle will want to do that, will want to ride. That's why this 13 thing, um, I keep going back and forth, as I mentioned, but the 13 thing, I believe, is going to end up being, you know, somebody where they may try to bring in a more established player. But it's it's kind of ugly. I mean, there's really nothing that jumped off the page that you're really thrilled about. And, and that's the problem. This bench is a problem. And we'll see if they're able to upgrade it coming up here, beginning on, on Thursday. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. Like I'm, I'm not in love with anybody on the bench and I'm still questioning whether or not Goga is the right guy to back up Sabonis at the Dutre Turner. Yeah. I mean, you're going to have to bring in a third center in my opinion that you can rely on to be a veteran presence. And if you're not feeling it with Goga after so many games, like, Hey, we got to go to this guy. And I know that people are like, are you serious? You know, we, we're going to trade a center and then bring another one in. But I just, feel like, you know, Turner's too good to put on the bench, and so is Domas. So they're not going to accept that role. You have to find somebody that's willing to accept that role as being a third option with the possibility of being a second option if somebody gets injured. Kind of similar to Kyle O'Quinn when he was brought in here a yeah. couple of years ago. Um, Al Jefferson, a guy that took that back seat when they traded for Sabonis. I just, I just really feel like that's where they have to go in terms of free agency is if, if they do trade Miles or maybe they can get a center back in a trade with uh, with the team that they make for Miles. You know, I just, I, I look at all these different options and I just, I'm just curious how this team is going to get better. I think they're going to make moves. I would be really shocked if they once again ran it back. And I know that there's a lot of people that are on, like, I think Chris Denary has said that he's pretty bullish on this group. He likes this starting five and would like to see them given a chance. I know that I've heard Mark Monty say that he thinks TJ McConnell should be the starting point guard because of what he brings, and he's a true point guard. Um, I understand some of their logic, and, and I think that they're good basketball minds. They've been around basketball for a very long time, so not discrediting them. I just don't think you can win in today's NBA with two centers or with a McConnell guy at point guard because in today's NBA, you need people that can shoot the three and can do more than just be an energy guy because, I mean, that, that to me is just where I'm at with this roster. Yeah, I get you on that. I do. It'll be interesting to see. It's kind of funny. I just I, I think that if they are thinking about um, guys at 13, that is probably not the guys that we're thinking about. You know what I mean? I just get that feeling. It's weird. But, like, I, I've spent so much time talking about Davion Mitchell and in large part it's because, to me, he showed me that at the very least in his first year in the NBA, he can bring a level of chest up on you type of perimeter defense that this group does not have in the backcourt right now. But, you know, I he, maybe Rick Carlisle didn't want to wait for somebody like that to evolve as a player that is trustworthy. It just kind of seems like you bring somebody in four years and $29 million, and then you already have the Simons who obviously want back into the postseason, and you got Kevin Pritchard feeling that – that Alex, that hey, now is the some of the stuff's got to start popping right now. This could be my ass, and I think it puts more of a priority not just on the season, but what you do 
to cobble together a roster to help this roster out going into this season. I think it puts more of a priority on days like we're going to see coming up on Thursday. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I know that uh, ESPN just put out a mock draft. I believe it was Jonathan Gavoni and uh, Mike Schmidt, and they have Davion Mitchell of Baylor going to the Pacers, and they talk about how Brogdon's entering the final year of his contract. I think he has a player option for next season, if I'm not mistaken. But, yeah, that that is interesting. They might be looking at who could be the potential replacement, but I don't know if it's him. Uh, one guy that I've kept my eye on closely, he just re-signed with Toronto last year, and that's Fred Van Vliet. Yeah. I don't have an idea what Toronto is going to be doing with their roster. They've got the fourth overall pick. There's been rumblings that they can move on from Pascal Siakam. Not sure what they do in that case and who they'd want to bring in. But if Fred Van Vliet somewhat becomes available, uh, I think if I'm the Pacers, I really look hard at that. And I actually really like the fit of Miles Turner in Toronto. Uh, I think that that's probably the best fit overall for him if they do keep Siakam and OG Ananobi. Because if you put those three together in the front court, that is a really, really, really strong defensive team. Yeah, I like. I've always liked Van Vliet. I, I like Van Vliet back when he played for for Wichita State, and he was in that backcourt that went went to the Final Four with Ron Baker. I've always liked him, and he's a guy that that works hard and has elevated his game. Uh, is a uh, a guy that can hit the three now. Mm-hmm. Uh, can be stingy. He'll chest up into defensively as well. I've always liked that. Yeah, I think Michael Scotto from Hoops Hype last year had so the Pacers did call about the availability of Fred Van Vliet in the offseason and the sign-and-trade deal. And um, I guess those talks did not, you know, go go very far. But um, it depends on what they do with Lowry as well. I mean, there's just a lot of question marks with Toronto. So I think I'm just monitoring that because I think Van Vliet is a Rick Carlisle guy. I think he's good defensively, much better at guarding ones probably than I think Brogdon is just because he's a little bit smaller, can keep keep him in front of him better, good three-point shooter. And with that experience he had winning the NBA Finals, you can't really replace that. I, I think that that really does speak volumes, and they need a leader on this team. So that's the route I would prefer them to go if they go any route this offseason. But I'm also intrigued by going after some younger guys that haven't really hit their prime yet, and, and, and a guy like Ben Simmons or even Lonzo Ball, uh, just just to see if they can upgrade the roster. But I, I just feel like there's more of a chance they don't run it back than they do. But if they run it back, I mean, I'm going to – have a hard time really trying to sell this team next year to our fan base on my podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it'd be yeah that I, I I'd agree. I can't imagine it just doesn't seem like it's put together uh, Rick Carlisle style to me. Mm-hmm. You know, it just doesn't. And I think that, like I told you earlier, I think he's going to have a hell of a lot more say than even what we believe. So uh, yeah, I um yeah I can't imagine that either. Yeah, so real quick before I let you go here, what are your thoughts on the assistant coaching staff that has been brought in here so far from Rick Carlisle? Um, My thoughts are if um, they win, then these guys are really good, and if they don't, they're not very good. (laughs) So I I, I should probably uh, be a a little bit more dynamic in my – the way I break it down. I mean, I – that's how I view it, right? I mean, if if you're good – then you're probably going to get some love as a great bench. And then last year, you know, I I don't know how bad it – I know how bad it got last year, but I really don't know how bad it was because apparently dealing with Bjorkgren was somewhat of a headache and or nightmare depending upon at what level you were within that organization. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I trust – I think what you have to do in this situation – 
is trust what Rick Carlisle has done and who he is and what he can do. Um, and I know coaches, for the most part, aren't viewed as being able to win games uh, at the level that the players are. But he is one of those guys that you would view as a game changer as head coach. And there aren't a lot of those guys in the NBA that are described as those kind of game changing guys uh, that can get it done. That's not an actual player. So I, I trust his decision making, but I always kind of, you know, look at a bench. You know, it's, it was so easy. Wasn't it back in the day when bird just had Dick Carter and Rick Carlisle and he had a <laughs> defensive coordinator and an offensive coordinator. And that was it. Yep. It's so much easier, but uh, I, I do get it. I don't mind it at all. But um, it's only going to be as good, I think, as how this team and its results are going to end up being. Yeah, I, I think the only thing I'll say to you know to the assistant staff that they've hired is just a stronger pedigree, um, stronger resume, and fans can say, "Wow, they brought in some bigger names." You know, I think Ronald Norad is probably the most uh, you know unproven in the terms of not having a yeah. long coaching career, but still somebody this town knows from his days of Butler. And then, of course, I believe Calvert Chaney is on the roster or on the staff as well from a report I saw, but I haven't seen anything else added to that lately. So, um, anyway, I, I'm excited for this for this upcoming season. I think Carlisle, like you said, is going to have much more of a say than people probably realize yeah. because they're going to want to build this roster to what he feels comfortable with. They spend a ton of money on him, and if they're just going to spend money on him to coach the guys they give him, uh, they'd be dumb not to ask his opinion. So, uh, that's all I have. Anything else you want to talk about before we sign off? No, man, it's it's always good. I just, I think that it's going to be interesting. We, we'll, it's going to be an open book, I think, as to what they end up doing on Thursday night as to the, the short-term direction that they're going. I mean, mm-hmm. it's going to be an open book on, you know, all that we have talked about, you know, so far. You know, the, the belief is, you know, getting back to the postseason, but, you know, just how quickly or how close do you believe that you are uh, compared to, you know, running it back or not running it back and, you know, keeping the same roster. I think we're going to find out a great deal about how they maneuver around on Thursday as to the direction that this team is is going. And um, we'll see. I'll let the Davion Mitchell thing is cool in the mock draft. It never works out that way, though, does it? Come on now. Never. Yeah, never been- does it work out that way. Yeah, especially once you get past like the first five or six picks, I feel like it just oh, you just never know what's going to happen. Teams could trade up or people, uh, guys could fall back in the draft. You could get an offer that you want to take and move back or move out completely. I mean, there's so much that could go on, but I am excited to see what the Pacers do. And we'll be doing a live draft show during the during the draft. We're going to hopefully pick up around pick ten uh, if the Pacers keep pick thirteen and kind of just see what's happened and talk about that and look at who could be on the board for the Pacers and discuss guys we like and don't like. So, uh, Who do you like best in this draft? Hey, in closing, who do you like best? Like in terms of realistic options for us? Uh, no, uh, just in general, in oh. the players. Yeah, I think Cade Cunningham for me is number one, and I and I think Evan Mobley is number two. Uh, I get why a lot of people are high on Jalen Green. I really think he's just a guy that jumps off the page in terms of highlight reels. But I think Evan Mobley might be the most uh, – it feels like when you hear about the top four – a lot of people keep talking about Green and, and Suggs and, you know, oh, maybe Scotty Barnes could jump up into the top four, and then everybody's just kind of sleeping on Mobley a little bit. I, I know that center the center position is not uh, the most intriguing position at this point, but 
I just think it with what Mobley did last year at USC, how young he is, what he can do on the defensive side as well. He is a guy that I think could possibly be the best player in this draft in five years. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I think Cade is still the guy just because of all the intangibles and knowing that he's probably the number one pick. I think people have kind of talked like overlooked him a little bit because they're just not going to talk about it as much as there's not much of a debate there. But yeah, I think the comparisons I've heard is he's got more Luka Doncic in him than anything. So I mean, comparing a guy like that to Luka Doncic, I mean, it makes you think, hey, how how, how much better could you get at number one? I think Cade Cunningham makes a lot of sense there. Suggs, Jalen Suggs, mark my words. In the future, he is going to be the best player in this draft. Okay. Mark it down. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I do. I, I love Jalen Suggs. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think for me, the guy that I'm really intrigued by is Scotty Barnes, to be honest he, with you. Yeah, I, I, I here's what you know, I'll give you my Suggs thing. And I certainly watch a lot of Gonzaga basketball, but I I think he is going to be a a both ends. You know how you describe McConnell and you know, some guys go, Yeah, this is game number, whatever. Suggs Suggs has an elite level of talent and he goes balls to the wall the entire time. And I think that that is going to be the difference in some of these guys that you see compared to him. And that's why if, if I were drafting number one, that's that's where I would go. But uh, yeah, just having watched him a ton, that's that's what I like. I know that everybody conveniently calls it motor, and I'm not going to call it motor, but my man is engaged 24-7, 365, and then the entirety of the game. And uh, as we see, oftentimes that is not the case. I think that drive alone is going to elevate him to being the best player on the draft. Yeah, I, I really like Suggs. I, I think really the top five for me I'm in love with. I actually have Moses Moody ahead of Jonathan Kaminga because I think Kaminga is such a project and such a uh, high-risk, high-reward kind of guy because he could really just flame out to me. Um, as a guy that, you know, like, man, I'm surprised he never panned out. He, he has all the intangibles. But – I think Moses Moody, his floor is really high. I don't know how high his ceiling is. That's kind of why I think Indiana makes a ton of sense for him, just because of his ability to play defense on both ends and as a you know, shot 42%, I believe, yep. 41% from three last year. So that's what I like about him. And I see the same arguments for a Chris Duarte and a Corey Kispert, like what they were able to bring on the offensive end last year, shooting 40-some percent from three in college. But yeah, Man, I hope Kispert's good, too. Kip, Kispert scared me in that game against Baylor because they had, you know, between Mitchell and Butler on that perimeter, they had, you know, like NBA type of talent. They played NBA, an NBA style. And, man, Kispert, you know, and then, you know, Drew Timmy went back to Gonzaga. And even, I think one of the guys, uh, IIA, who was, uh, I think, in the first round, early second round possibility, those guys didn't really look like they belonged on the floor. Suggs was the only one. So, yeah, that was – and hopefully for Kispert, uh, he does transition into that, and that's fine. But he didn't look that, – that was a red flag for me uh, in that, that mm -hmm. game alone. Having watched him a ton over his career, uh, that part with Corey Kispert kind of worried me just a little bit. And, and yeah. the same thing for Wagner. Watching Wagner when Michigan went out and he absolutely disappeared at the end of that tournament game, uh, that yeah. was also a red flag for me. Yeah, I'm not the biggest Wagner fan. I think he's okay. I, I can see why teams really like him, but I just – if I'm Indiana, I just – I feel a little bit nervous about that pick. That's that's where I'm at with 13. I just – I don't know where you're yeah. at with it. I just – I'm a little nervous with yeah, taking you should a risk be. on a yeah, guy. Yeah, I just, you, yeah, you're, yeah, you should be, and, and Kevin should be too. 
because yeah. if they take if they you know if they take a risk take somebody and it doesn't pan out at all that's his ass so yes <laughs> so he yeah. should be he should be worried about that yeah. as well that's why we may end up seeing them doing some wheeling and dealing by virtue of of our thoughts on that alone. So Yeah, and I'll say this real quick. I said it on the last podcast, but I just want to reiterate it here with you to kind of hear your thoughts. If they could somehow get number seven overall from Golden State, give up Miles Lamb and maybe Justin Holiday in the deal to get number seven and Andrew Wiggins, um, I think at seven, that's where you get Moses Moody, a guy that you really believe can contribute right away. And then at 13, that does give you the opportunity to draft someone that might be a bust but also could be a home run, you know, kind of hitter. And, and I think there's a couple guys like that. I think that Jalen Johnson from Duke is a guy that could really, you know, make, you know, be a great player, or he could just totally be a, a flame out. And, and same with a guy like Zaire Williams from Stanford. These are two guys that are just so risky to pick. But I think if you can get a second pick and pick early at seven, that gives you more of a chance to swing for a guy like that. And if you can hit on one of those two at 13, I think that that really could help you look at this team in the future, not just now, but with your future. I mean, there's not many other players that I feel like you can really rely on uh, to kind of be the next group of guys going forward outside of what good. Man, I mean, I'm telling percent. you though, Alex, you're putting a lot of – that deal would put a lot of emphasis on Moses Moody transitioning to being good really quickly. And let's just say, for example, I, I get where you're going with it too, but mm – -hmm. Let's say, for example, you know, Miles goes to Golden State and they're good and he's good by virtue of that. And then the Pacers aren't and, and you know, it's kind of a slog and 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 Moody's not ready. And that that to me, <laughs> that's what would scare Kevin Pritchard, I think, the most right there mm -hmm. is that is a situation like that. Scared's the wrong word, but I um that's that's a huge chance, right? That is a huge chance. I mean, I, I, I get what you're saying on it. It just that doesn't seem to me like what Rick Carlisle would want and certainly why they brought him in in the first place. That that would just that's why you know I again I mentioned I keep going back and forth. That's why I'm kind of stuck on uh, yeah, Andrew Wiggins season not going well, Miles having success someplace else, first round picks. Not ready to go as of yet. Woo, that would be a bad, bad situation around here. So it's, I, I yeah, see where the I, risk is at in that one too. I see what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, that's tough. <laughs> that's tough. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. That, it's it's difficult. But hey, listen, it, it, it's it's a more original thought. I'll give you credit for that certainly because I mean, mine's just hey, Davion Mitchell. I mean, any numbnut can pull that out of his <laughs> rear end and go, hey, Davion Mitchell. You know, so it's not like yeah. I'm adding a, a great deal of smarts right here. So, but well, I, I get what you're saying. I just. I just don't have the feel that that's the direction they would think about going. Yeah, and I understand that completely. I, I, I know that it's more likely they trade back than trade up. I just – I think if they did trade up, they found a trade they liked for Turner. Getting on those rookie contracts, too, to me, is something that would be beneficial for the next four years because if you do hit on one of those guys or two of those guys and you've got two rotational players making minimal salary, and that's kind of what we saw with Atlanta and Phoenix this year, being able to make big trades in the offseason, having guys on those lower-tier contracts instead of – you know, paying TJ Warren, Brogdon, Turner, Savonis, you know, all around 20 million a year. So yeah, that just, and that's the only I benefit. Did, in closing, too, man, I want to let everybody know that uh, a couple of years ago, and when you're going, oh, yeah, okay, Davion Mitchell, or oh, Jalen Suggs, the best in the draft. Um, a couple of uh, years ago, I really liked Malik Monk. So 
<laughs> you put that, you take that to the bank, okay? That's I like Malik Monk, and I don't think that worked out very well uh, for Malik Monk as of yet. So a lot of it's good. A lot of it's good. Has he been decent? He was I mean, okay. I didn't even like the good one. Like De'Aaron Fox was a good one, right? I didn't even like him. He's like the better one. I like Malik Monk. So a lot of people were high on Monk. that. Hey, you know what, though? You weren't alone. A lot of people that, that draft love Malik Monk. I think that draft is probably one of the most intriguing drafts that we've seen in a long time because of how many good players were in it and then how many guys kind of flaked out uh, that were considered like top picks, like Marco Fultz. Like, I don't think he flaked out, but, you know, Boston trading out of that one to move down to three to get Tatum. I mean, I think any team would rather have Tatum than Fultz by now. Lonzo yeah. Ball went two. Justin Jackson or Josh Jackson, whatever his name was, uh, that went to Phoenix. He was, you know, someone that really didn't pan out. Kings get De'Aaron Fox. They can't get a roster to build around him to be competitive, and then they have to pay him all this money, and they're still looking uh, for, for a team to really build around him because they've been so mediocre uh, for the past forever, it feels like. So, yeah, I mean, Malik Monk, yep. it's a, he's a scorer, and I think that's what you want. But at the end of the day, I think it depends on your fit with your roster and uh, how the coaching staff uses you. I mean, Steve Clifford's not a guy that I think really is going to utilize Malik Monk the right way. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> so, true, man. That's that, true. That's that's hey, what I'm saying. Coaching matters. Well, I appreciate you inviting me on setting the pace here, man. And uh, we'll get you on later on in the week, and we'll talk about some of the things we brought up today, too. All right, Fachi, well, that wraps it up for another episode of Setting the Pace. Where can the people find us at on social media? You can find us on Twitter at SettingThePace3. You can find Alex on Twitter at AlexGoldenNBA. I can be found on Twitter at underscore F-A-C-C-I. And you can find us on Instagram at PacersTalk. And at the end of the day, if you're excited for the Indiana Pacers offseason, say these three words. Let's go Pacers! Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.